Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. Now that I'm done directing the development and first episode of the second series of Space Station Animation, I'm joining up with Steamroller Animation to push the boundaries of the art form. Thanks to the support of so many of you, I'm continually developing more than 10 dynamic feature film pitches while mastering the art of telling deeply meaningful stories. Today, our guest is the ultra-talented Chris Sanders. His work includes, at least as a director, Lilo and Stitch, How to Train Your Dragon, The Crudes, and then before that, you worked on several different projects at Disney. I know you were a writer on Mulan, and I'm so excited to have you here. You just have a fantastic art style and a unique voice. In all the studios you, you have worked at, I feel like you're... Your projects, the stories have a unique voice to them, and I want to discuss how you get that and, yeah, just dive into all the, the great things about directing animation. Thank it, you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, it is. Is there anything to that intro you'd like to add? Or uh, That was a great, <laughs> that's a really good, that's a good intro. Uh, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, let's dive into that first question. How do you maintain that voice, that unique voice to your projects? You know, in the studio system, it's it seems like sometimes there's got to be a Disney feel to things, but there was something different about Lidl and Stitch, you know. And then in DreamWorks, they have a certain feel to their movies. And there was a different, unique, I think both to like the Kung Fu Panda series and to the How to Train Your Dragon series, that they seem to stand out in a way. And I'd love to know how you maintain that that unique voice in the project. I would say if there's anything that would be consistent through the stuff that I work on is that... I think I come from a place of sincerity. I'm not uh -huh. un, I'm not uncomfortable with the emotional wavelengths of the films that I work on. I have yeah, I would say that I I embrace those things and um I think that's that's where I thrive. Uh is more in those emotional places. I've worked with people, um I've worked with, with executives and some of them are more focused on I think uh in the case of like Jeffrey Katzenberg, one of the things I really appreciated is that um mm -hmm. he was always attending to the um, audacity of a, of a movie. Oh, I think, that's cool. I think in general, he tended to, because as you work on these things, I think you get closer and closer and closer to them until like you might get lost in the details as a director or a writer or mm -hmm. a story person. So you can get lost in the details, but he would, Jeffrey would constantly pull you back and force you to look at the big picture. Yeah. Um, well, we worked with an, uh, an executive named uh, Bill Damaschke, and he was much more attentive to the emotional wavelengths. And so between the two of them, I thought they had a great relationship. That's cool. And the audacity would be just like the boldness of what you're trying to say and the yeah. the courage to be unique. And to remind you to think of the audience, to remind you like this is a movie. People paid money to see this. They, <laughs> to, they didn't come to see real life. They came to be taken on an adventure. They right. came to escape and they came to feel something. And so do those things. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you have you encountered, if you've encountered like resistance to that, the uh, the emotional rawness or the audacity of a story? How how have you helped people get on board with that? I've never had anybody that didn't respond to the emotional things that we were doing. Okay. I think that we're good. I think that uh, we being, um, uh, I, I worked on many of these things with Dean Deblois, and yeah. I also worked with uh, Kirk D'Amico on The Crudes. And I've always worked with people who had a similar sensibility. Okay. The most important thing, the most important thing in a co-director is that you all share sensibilities so that one of you is not making a drama while the other one is making a comedy. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> don't want to be at cross purposes. That said, though, you want somebody who sees things differently. And so everybody I've ever worked with has brought in a different dimension to the to the whole process. But we've always been making the same movie. I've never had anybody not respond to the emotional things we we put in these things. But I have definitely worked with I've definitely worked with people who have. How do you say <laughs> you can with people? I've worked with people who will give you notes along the lines of like, well, I don't I don't get this or I don't buy this. I don't buy this. I don't, you know, and there are just leaps that you have to make when you're making a movie um, again in service to the audacity of it that yeah. um, if you stop and, and really logic every single thing out, the whole thing will fall apart. Really oh, yeah. good of that. A good example of that would be um, yeah. especially in the crudes, you can't write a movie like that without constantly referencing things in the dialogue that are impossible. They would say, wait a minute, or um, put on the brakes, or, you know, they, there's all these things they're saying, like, they don't have minutes, they don't have they brakes. They don't have brakes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't write the movie if you take all those things away. So in a case like that, you just, and in all these cases, you really have to close your eyes and just feel your way through it. Does it bother you? Does it bump for you? Or does it stick out? And yeah. if it does stick out, you have to attend to it. If yeah. it bumps, you have to attend to it. But if it doesn't, then don't stop. Just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> just right past those things because you've got you should have. Hopefully you have a bigger destination. Well, that bump ph phenomenon you you mentioned is very interesting because I think sometimes it's almost so far in the back of the mind that you feel like you can ignore it or, you know, that you almost don't hear it. But I think as a creative, you definitely learn to notice it. How would you describe I that bumping feeling for your for yourself? I think oddly enough, there's there's two times I notice things like that. Of course, the first hopefully you notice it right away as yeah, you're yeah. just watching this whole thing. Once we get things up on story reels, we will watch them in story reel form. That's the second time you're confronted with it. And now it's it's taken its first step to being a movie. And that's where you um a story reel is where you take all the different story drawings, which are just black and white drawings, and you string them together with music and dialogue. And the whole thing, you can build the entire film as a scale model in story form in story real form now you're watching it more like a movie that's mm -hmm. the second time that something that's going to bump is going to make itself evident yeah. just the you're seeing it like now now it's being you know, now it's up on screen and then but the last time that you'll notice it is in a test screening ah uh, yes so we will test the film before it's finished mm -hmm. and then of course we'll test it afterwards and um just to get audience reactions stuff like that there's just a, a phenomenon that occurs when you go into a theater with strangers and you sit down. It's weird how many times you sit down and go, oh my gosh, we should have taken this part out. Yeah. And suddenly there's this sobering this thing that happens. Yeah. That like somebody else is going to see it. And you're like, all of a sudden, even before they watch it, you're like, I shouldn't have left that in the movie. That was a waste of time. I got to take this out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, now several times we've gone to screenings and we've had the opposite happen where there was something I was beginning to get a little bit wary of in the story. Oh, yeah. Feeling like pulling it out. And the audience reacted positively. So we left it in. Ah, yes. That's really cool. That's really cool. I think it's something about the lens of another person. You like, you know, that the other person is going to look at it. And so all of a sudden your yeah. brain runs through it and it's like, what's wrong with it? You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I found yeah. that with writing, you know, you just you hand somebody one of these books and suddenly I know the problems that are there, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah. luckily they've gotten less and less over time because I learned to structure that into the process of like, rather than a test screening, I've had a test uh, reading or whatever. But 
Um, these are pitches for films anyway. So I imagine there'd probably be another level if any one of these got picked up that, you know, you'd get it all in an animatic form. And then suddenly you'd have that process again. You'd be able to it, see it through those other eyes. I remember the, the I used to, um, well, being a story artist, mm-hmm. if you're doing a job, you do a certain amount of rewriting because when you get the pages from the script, they never translate directly. You always have to do some kind of adaptation, large or small. And I would get really frustrated back on Beauty and the Beast and 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 when I worked on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin um, and even Lion King, I'd get these pages and I'm like, well, these don't work. Uh-huh. I need to... And I think like someday, someday when I write one of these, I, I'm not going to have to go through this, right? <laughs> so fast forward to Lilo and Stitch, and now I'm sitting down with my pages that I wrote, right? And I'm bored yeah. it. I'm going to board uh-huh. my pages finally. And the first thing I thought was, well, this doesn't work. Yeah, who wrote this? Like, this, this <laughs> work. suddenly you're just you know, and it makes sense. You're not when you're writing. You're attending to something different. You're not really attending to every single little nut and bolt as to the physics of how somebody moves through a space or how um, these different scenes might relate to each other visually as they as they transition. So you just are naturally going into a different level where now you're be- it's like you really hit the beach. Mm-hmm. Like storyboarding is where the story really lands. It hits the beach and it's going to start making its way inland. Yeah. And you're fighting, you got to fight your way off the beach and get through all the growing pains. And so um, th- there's no way you can really foresee every everything as you write. So it's natural. It's natural to reboard some things. So yeah. you're already writing. That's That was really my introduction into the writing part of it and to dealing and to, and to associating with and dealing with writers. Yeah, that's awesome. So... Uh, we have a viewer who asked a question about who are the storytellers, like filmmakers, directors, who inspire you most in the present and in the, the past? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> Where to start? <laughs> um, I can talk about like favorite films. And the funny thing is I don't know exactly like who directed these necessarily, but um, in the live action realm, certainly To Kill a Mockingbird mm. is, um, is really amazing. And um, one of the things I learned about that they had the writer on set oh, the entire wow. time they filmed. Wow. And as they worked on the thing, if there were any sort of changes or revisions, she would pen them for them. So they kept her very close during that whole thing. And I feel like that is a, it's an unusual story. Certainly, um, uh, it's a wonderful life. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> um, That's Frank Capra. These, I can definitely tell you that one. Frank Capra. <laughs> yeah. um, I actually, I actually um, stayed in supposedly as if the legend is correct i stayed in this <laughs> hotel out in palm springs where he wrote that movie yeah i think movies like that that, that are a little more a little more un- unusual structurally yeah oh if you like his that film you'll like uh, mr smith goes to washington that one's really great yes yeah absolutely yeah. And, uh, and i think in the animated realm charlie brown christmas is mm. is one of those magical things i think not unlike lilo and stitch that it was a very it was obviously a very personal project yeah and it has its flaws but <laughs> if you fix them if you fix them it wouldn't work and that's what really inspires me about that it inspires me and it kind of terrifies me as well. yeah yeah that makes sense I, I don't like reminding myself how how much chance there is in this whole thing there's, um, there's a ton. A, there's, a, there's a lot you can attend to. There's a lot you can you have under your control. But mm-hmm. there are other things like that are the happenstance of how these projects fall together. Some of that you can't really control. So some of that is like, oh, the, the casting and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, casting behind the scenes of like 
which animators will you get? Which 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 uh, cinematographers are you going to get? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. And, and and you you get a collection. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just once oh, you yeah. get that collection of people, every single person will contribute. And if you went back in time to Lion King and you changed out even one person, that movie would be just a tiny bit different, right? Yeah, that's pretty inspiring so to think there's about. A, there's an alchemy to it. Yeah, there is. There is. I might be able to speak to the Charlie Brown one a little bit because. Uh, Somebody's asking me yesterday what my favorite, because I used to do a lot of musical theater, what my favorite Broadway musical was. And for some reason, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown keeps rising to the top of my list. And it's it's really a bunch of vignettes. It's like a car. I think the reason it works is because mm. it's like a cartoon strip. We have all these little moments, but then they come together to this great, meaningful whole. And when, you know, Lucy Brown says, oh, it's not Lucy, Sally Brown says at the very end, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. I just get the most... Like I get goosebumps and the most visceral mm. feeling, you know, and uh, I think part of it is the, the characters and, and the nature of like Charles Schultz's creation mm. that um, that may be part of the alchemy that uh, that we're missing as well. You know, I think that's a really interesting example that you give, because one of the things about Lilo and Stitch to me mm -hmm. must have been true about that film to him, because he knew those characters better than anyone. <sighs> and really early on with Lilo and Stitch. Um, Dean and I began to write it and the first draft is not going to be the film. You're going to rewrite it and stuff like that. Anyway, one of our development executives actually approached Dean and I and said, you know, they're thinking about, they're considering getting a writer to come on board because that was yeah. not because we weren't doing the job right, but because that was really just the way it was done. That's what you do. Yeah. Right. And Dean and I felt like, well, we can write it. We really right. felt strong that we wanted to like retain control over this whole thing. Right. And one of the reasons I felt very strongly about it was. I thought, well, how is he going to write Lilo? He doesn't know her. I do. Like, <laughs> I, know, I know what she does. I know what I, I know what she does and how she does it and why she does it. And why she does it? Yeah. He won't know that. So I just I foresaw myself sitting down, going, "No, no, you're," and and really not being a good person to work for in that situation because I think he would just get frustrated with me because I'd be just like, "Well, you're doing it all wrong." So Dean and I redoubled our efforts to make sure that the the characters were distinct and the writing was up to up to the par up to par. Um, and we remained writers on the whole thing, and we never got, we never got a writer. We we were the writers. Yeah, um, that awesome. was also very important to us because uh, back then there was a real there was a real sort of push and pull between writers and the story crew, mm -hmm. and um, there could be animosity. Sometimes they worked really well together. A lot of times there was animosity, and um, because I think the, the 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 two groups didn't understand each other. And again, mm -hmm. going back to Mulan, I did writing on Mulan. I wrote enough of my scenes. Yeah. As I went and rewrote some of the scenes because mm -hmm. I thought, well, I thought, well, this this doesn't work. Right. Like the whole thing where um, the dad says the thing about um, the blossom, where mm -hmm. she's had a bad day and he needs to he needs to talk to her about it, but neither of them really want to discuss it right out in the open. So instead, he says that whole thing about the flower, which is mm -hmm. something I wrote because I felt wow. that would be a, a natural way for a guy who who may not be comfortable, you know, a hundred percent comfortable in that situation. What would he, how would he say it? Yeah. And so I wrote that bit. I ended up writing enough of the movie that they granted me a writing credit at the end. Wow. That was something that was completely discretionary. The studio didn't have to do that. Um, so that was my, that was my first writing credit. And I really wanted to roll forward with that. That was another reason that Dean and I really wanted to write Lilo and Stitch. And we ended up writing how to train your dragon, the yeah. final version. So making that jump into writing was really important for us. And when you talked about, this kind of brings us full circle to the very beginning when you're yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about how do you keep your essence in the movie, the more stuff of yourself in there as, that you can get. So if you can 
work yourself into a position where you can write or partner with the writer, you're going to get a lot more in there, I think. I think so. Absolutely. So that's really cool, too. That's not what I expected to hear, <laughs> which is great. Um, you mentioned Dean Dubois. I think I just pronounced his name wrong, but he's awesome, right? Uh, he was mentored by Joe Grant, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, Joe, uh, Joe Grant, and he kind of mentored all of us. Um, he was at the yeah. studio when I was there. Um, oh, man. There's a Joe Grant story that preceded my arrival, but I was told about, of it. Like a bunch of new executives came in, and they had this big meeting, and all the executives went around the table, and they said, well, uh, introduce yourself and and then and tell us what projects you started with and stuff. <laughs> and as they went around the table, they were like, oh, you know, very, very they were very relatively young. And when they got to Joe Grant, he said, I'm Joe Grant. My first movie was Snow White. <laughs> yeah, I, that was a that was a that was a moment. Um, that is an amazing moment. And he had the coolest job. job, too. He could just walk around and give people story ideas, you know, and just yeah. influence the projects and give them unique gifts. You know, he was like a gift giver. He'd just walk around, which is actually what storytelling should be. We shouldn't be making these things to show off or to show how amazing we are. They should be gifts, you know, that we're yeah. giving to the audience, like he said before. Yeah. I met Joe on uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Uh, when we were, he, would, he would drop into the story meetings, and that mm -hmm. was when I first met him. And I knew I knew him ever since. Um, yeah. yeah, I remember one time he dropped into my office, and he was really excited because he said, "Oh my gosh, you have ink!" Because I had <laughs> ink bottles on my desk. Yeah, Joe loved to. Um, he really liked to uh, work with pen and ink. Yeah. So when he saw ink on my desk, he's like, "Oh my gosh, nobody has ink anymore. This is great." <laughs> but a whole afternoon talking about just like pens and ink and brushes is great. Oh, that's amazing. That's so fun. Yeah, he's he's really inspirational. Um, are there any other lessons that you picked up from him that you feel are very valuable? Oh my gosh, he and Bernie Madsen. Um, one of the things, actually, here's I. One of my my great regrets with Joe is that um, one day he brought in a photograph, and he showed me this photograph. And um, there were these chairs at Disney Studio. They became kind of legendary. A designer, I can't remember the I can't remember the name the name of the designer, but they were designed specifically, I believe for disney studios those chairs and we just had them in our rooms and you know if you got an office with one of these chairs you you know they kind of reclined they were made of leather and, and bent yeah. wood and they're beautiful they're like sort of sort of 1930s kind of a vibe Oof. they became very sought after uh, at a certain <laughs> point and at a certain point they all disappeared from animation and i think they all went across to the executive offices um, <laughs> But Joe brought in a beautiful photograph of, of someone. It was black and white, and it was somebody sitting in one of those chairs. And the sunlight was coming in from the side. And and I can't remember who the subject of the photograph was. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is the beautiful photograph. Because we had been talking about film and cameras, and he said he had a Rolleiflex, and he used to take pictures of the studio. And this was a photograph from inside Disney Studios during Joe Grant's era. And mm -hmm. um and it was so beautiful. And I said, oh, my gosh, did you take a lot of photographs at, at work? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I took a ton. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Sitting in his you know, house in some photo album is a treasure trove of photographs from the studio during its golden era, its silver era, whatever, its platinum era that nobody's ever seen. That maybe maybe only Joe has seen. Wow. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And I, I was... I tried to persuade him to like, if you bring in the negatives, I'd scan them right here. <laughs> we could scan them so maybe like we could digitize them so other people could see them. And he, he was a little bit reticent to do that, which I get. Yeah. But I always wondered, I've always wondered what else he had pictures of from the studio. Wow, that'd be fascinating. 
Yeah, from that era. Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh. That'd be amazing. So we've talked about Lilo and Stitch. We've talked about uh, the Croods. We haven't really talked too much about How to Train Your Dragon, which, uh, yeah, when I when I mentioned you being on the show to many people, they were really excited about that project in particular. What What would you think was the biggest lesson that you learned during, during How to Train Your Dragon? That doesn't even have to be lesson. It could be lessons, <laughs> but... Yeah, that was a huge one. Um, okay, so I was asked to come in on that after it had been in production for, I'd say, a year, maybe a little bit more. So they were down the road and they said, will you come in and take a look at the film? Because we're, we're interested in you taking over the directing of it. We want to make some changes. And I had seen it in the halls, but I didn't know anything about the story or the book or something like that. So he said, we're going to give you the story reel and then we're going to give you the book. And, we're, and you can take them away for the weekend, take a look at it and see if you want to do it. Oh. So I read the book for the very first time and then immediately sat down and watched the story reel. And it was immediately obvious to me that there was a short circuit that was, it had been built into the book and they were <gasps> dealing with it in the story reel. Oh, yes. Something that, something that we had to change mm. for the film would work. Mm -hmm. So my first call was to Dean. Because they said, oh, my gosh, what are you doing right now? Because I, I just landed on this project, and it's the perfect one for both of us to partner on again. Yeah. And he said, I, I was finishing something up, so the answer is yes. <laughs> um, and here the, here's the short circuit. In the book and in the, and in the story reel, their Vikings collect dragon eggs, but they also fight dragons. <gasps> oh. and, and so there's, a little, there's conflicting things. So the question is, are Vikings treating dragons like kind of like horses Pets, like wild yeah. horses, collect them and train them and stuff like this or are they enemies mm -hmm. and that was where the whole thing started so um and jeffrey katzenberg sat down with dean and i and he said normal as you know we normally make these films three times you only have enough time to make it once get it right <laughs> so what we did was and so we this taught me a lesson yeah it is okay to treat a film mechanically and, and and look at it just just clinically and structurally, because it doesn't mean that there's going to be no art. It doesn't mean the film will have no soul. Dean and I had to look at this film like almost like a math problem or uh -huh. a structural problem. So we stepped back and said, "Okay, is this?" Fit? So we got a blackboard. We got a good old fashioned blackboard that we hung up in the room that we would write on with chalk. Yeah. And once every day or two days, we would have a meeting with Jeffrey. And we would make a decision. And once we made that decision, that was done. We moved to the next step. We never second guessed ourselves. So the very first, basically the very first thing that we pitched him was, is this, do Vikings partner with dragons and ride them like horses or are they at war? Mm -hmm. We were recommending they were at war. That's going to be the biggest, you know, the biggest energy source for the, for the film. And Jeffrey said, great, they're at war, done, boom. So we, then we would move to the next thing. Okay, if they are at war, then what's the things we have to look at next? And for about two weeks, we intensively went through the film at a structural level, made decisions, and we stuck with them. And one of the things that we had to pitch that they embraced is we had to change Toothless. The Toothless from the book is not the Toothless in the movie. Oh. They are very different. The Toothless yeah. from the book had been built by the studio at great cost. He was detailed and beautifully rigged, and they had tested him and animated him, and he was the wrong dragon. This dragon was only about three feet long. The book 
the the uh, the was from the book <clears throat> is a little tiny dragon that sits on uh, interesting shoulder. Yeah, and that's all the bigger he ever gets. He's still in the film. There's a scene where Toothless lands on a beach with Hiccup, and they're enjoying some fish, and all these little dragons land and bother them. They're almost uh-huh. like seagulls. Those are the original Toothless. Oh wow! That dragon is more expensive and more and more fully rigged almost than Toothless is, because that was the original Toothless. That's incredible. Um, so you can see the problem. If that dragon, like we're like, if he's going to befriend a dragon, if they're at war and he befriends a dragon. That dragon has to be the most terrifying dragon of all, not a little tiny dragon that needs to be protected. <laughs> like, in hiding this little tiny dragon from his dad, like in baskets and hiding him under his bed and stuff like that, that's not a movie. We need this him to befriend the enemy. So we went back to the studio um, and pitched that to Jeffrey, and he said, "Do it. Make him <laughs> make him the the most badass dragon you can imagine." Right? Yeah. Um, one of the things that Dean and I were doing while we were while we were having him built. And so we came back and said, we want the sports car of dragons. We want him to be actually smaller than the other dragons because some of these dragons are huge. Yeah. And you might think immediately like, okay, if he's going to be the most badass dragon, he's going to be this massive dragon. And we were like, no, he's going to be like a sports car. He's going to be like a Corvette. Mm-hmm. He's going to be like a fighter jet. He's going to be more compact. He's going to have tighter wing structure. He's not going to have these giant wings that have like tears and rips and stuff. He's going to be like, he's going to look durable, right? And then, and as we were redesigning him, the next thing that happened was we had to figure out what color he was going to be. And then, <laughs> and one of the, one of the engineers, or was it one of the, one of the engineers um, or artists as a screensaver? Mm-hmm. had a black panther yeah. and dean and i took one look at that and we were like that's what he should look like yeah. and we and we knew from the looks on everybody's faces who had to deal with that 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 was not going to be the most popular decision <laughs> <laughs> they're like and because they're like you can't light a black dragon you won't be able to see him and they're like well you kind of see him you know when the light hits him and stuff the like scales. that <laughs> yeah. so he's not a hundred percent black he's very 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 dark gray Oh, um, that's interesting. He also has a very slight modeling pattern on him, like almost yep. a slight camouflage. So he has variants and stuff. So he's not just flat and boring looking. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, and here's the the last part of this story I'll tell. To their credit, the crew at DreamWorks had been working on this movie for well over a year. They had sets built. They had characters built. Um, they had scenes that they had animated. And we brought them all into a, the auditorium, yeah. into the theater. And Dean and I very carefully stepped them through the new version of the movie and we told them what we were doing and why we were doing it and the last thing we laid on them was and we're changing toothless we're going to need a a new design and i remember the absolute silence in that theater (laughs) because this was a this was pretty heavy what we were laying on them to their credit no one freaked out no one objected everybody was on board they were just they were just processing it, all this mm-hmm. new information. And they turned right around and they and they built in just a couple of months what normally took them a year. Because we had to turn that new toothless design around from concept to being fully animated in just like a month or two. And again, they normally take about a year to go through this whole thing. So they really did a great job quickly building that dragon and getting him getting him airworthy. That's remarkable. How? We had to finally like tell the tell the author, like we had to oh. do the same. Thing. We like had to get on the phone and just go. Wow. Here's the deal: we're changing toothless. We explained again. 
We explained why. Um, from what I remember, she told her kids and her kids were like, now he's cool. This is cool. We like the new one, right? So they gave it their approval. Oh. Um, he <laughs> was great. Nice. Like she was really, really great. That's um, awesome. She was on board with all the changes and she totally understood. Like yeah. she got it. Like I know it's a, the book's one thing, the movie's another. I get it. Yeah. yeah. That's one thing that's so interesting when you when you read about people who really understand screenwriting, they tell you that screenwriting is a whole new beast. You're re- rewriting the story pretty much when because you're taking something that's you know maybe this long or this long and you're making mm-hmm. it much much shorter and streamlined and no fat on it uh, what i wanted like to know is how how are you so because con- you had to go in front of the author and then the whole crew who'd been working on this yeah. how how did were you able to be confident about the direction that you and dean had chosen if you worked in story a while you as you know um <laughs> you can tell when something like lines up and yeah it, it like it felt like roller coaster track like the the form looked good and there's certain things like well if you have two situations and you can find like it's like you have two situations one of them has more conflict that's the one you want to go with because conflict is what movies are about conflict resolution these are energy sources right yeah yeah, yeah. um movie making is extremely disciplined yes um (laughs) if you can make it look like fun good um but you but the time limit keeps you honest like after you're over like 90 minutes you're into a zone where you better have like an incredibly engaging movie if you're going to start crawling past 90 minutes. <laughs> you better be really uh, good, yeah. Yeah, you've got to have people engaged and stuff. So, I mean, I sit down all the time with a film that's like two hours long and you're like, okay, by the end of the weekend, we have to have this down to like 95 minutes. So you've got like chunks. you got to take whole like entire sequences out of these films to get into work. And then so many times you're like, oh my gosh, but I love this thing. I love this thing. And then you rip it out and you watch the movie without it. And you're like, no, it's better. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. It, I like the movie better. So you were able, you were able to be more confident because it felt whole. You felt like the conflict was bigger and better and the dynamics were working. Is that absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A kid who's hiding, a, a kid who's hiding this secret that he has a dragon friend from a dad who's um, bent on killing dragons. It's yeah. very different than the first reel, the, or the the first uh, story reel. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Absolutely. Where it, was, where it was again, it was more confusing. Like, is he hiding him? Does he like him? Does he not like him? What? And you come out of it, and you're like, well, I don't really know what the situation with these dragons are. There's yeah. a there's a chapter in the book that again, it's easy to see how this stuff can happen because there's a chapter in the book where the Viking uh, teenagers go into a cave to retrieve dragon eggs. And the cave is full of like sort of glowing worms and it's all gooey and sticky. Visually, it's really interesting. Yeah. It's easy to see why you're like, oh, man, I want to be the first person to board the sequence. It sounds amazing, right? You board it and then you're forced to admit like it really doesn't even belong in the film. That happened to be way, um, way back on Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. I worked on those sequences. And this is one of those moments of learning. Yeah. Um, in the movie, we had this what looked like a really amazing sequence everything in this castle is alive and despite bell having promised that she's going to stay she actually says promise or no promise i'm getting out of here and she decides to run away so i was in charge of boarding the sequence where like oh a girl in a castle where everything is alive must get out without you know sounding the alarm so she's stepping over footstools and trying to open a wardrobe really quietly and even the candelabras can come to life and stuff and i did this whole sequence where she escaped and I came in really early that morning to practice the pitch. And I had three storyboards worth of drawings. And I was practicing it 
Bernie Mattinson came in even before Joe had come in and he was sipping his coffee. And I said, oh, hey, Bernie, can I pitch this to you to practice? He said, sure. And I did. <laughs> and I started at the upper left of the first board and I pitched and I pitched and I pitched and I pitched the whole thing. And each board had about 55 drawings. And so I went to the first board, the second board and the third board. And on the, at the end of the third board, she rode away from the castle. And Bernie just sat there and he goes, mm-hmm, 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 just real quietly. And then he said, do you mind if I make a suggestion? And I said, no, please. <laughs> and he said, I think you could cut from uh, here. And he pointed to like the third drawing. <laughs> and then he went to, uh, and he just kept walking past the first board, past the second board. At the end of the third board, he basically painted, he basically pointed to the last drawing and said, to here. And I thought, he's right. So basically, <laughs> so, this sequence is unnecessary. You can yeah. cut from the first drawing to the last drawing and put those together. And there you go. And by the time the rest of the crew and the directors and the producer had come in, I, I had realized, oh, my God, he's absolutely right. So I, I tried with my... <laughs> As much enthusiasm as I could muster, I pitched the board with all this enthusiasm. And at the end, I said, however, I think you could cut from here to here, as Bernie has pointed out. And everybody was like, oh, yeah. And so it was like, so now in the movie, she says, promise or no promise, I'm leaving. And then you cut. And then and she's then gone. <laughs> cut to the outside of the castle. And she's riding out because <laughs> nobody wants to deal with that. Nobody cares how she got there. That's awesome. That is really that was, cool. You know what? That was one of my first experiences in just how I think how 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 cold you have to be sometimes, like and how brutal. Like I don't care if you boarded it, I don't care if you filmed it. It doesn't belong in the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So here's an interesting question for you, and um, this is more on dynamics within the industry. So I have a project that has been considered at multiple places, and from the beginning, I. I've known that it would probably be wise to be a co-director on it, you know, like, cause I don't have, my name isn't attached to any huge projects yet. Right. And so generally the industry wants a, a director who is, you know, this person directed that project. So they're marketable. Right. I noticed that you went from writing on Mulan to directing on Lilo and Stitch. And so I was wondering what the best way to navigate a situation like that would be if 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 possibly even if on this project like i can't be the director i'll just be the created by and the writer you know what's the best way to navigate a situation like that to like hone the hone the opportunity to be a, a stepping stone to directing but also you know making sure that you do a good job in that opportunity i think the key in this industry is you know show up do a great job <laughs> Don't be a problem. As in, like, <laughs> like, be. I have worked with story artists that I have not worked with very long because what I was really lucky. I'm going to back up just one second. I was really, really fortunate. Beauty and the Beast was the greatest experience, I think, along with uh, Mulan. Yeah. For reasons. I learned yeah. a lot on them. But one of the things I learned on Beauty and the Beast is a great story crew. You are devoted to a story and you're devoted to getting that story done. Nobody is going to go, you know, nobody's going to throw a fit and run out of the room if they yeah. don't get their way. Yeah. That's not, you have to work together and find problems and find ways to flow around problems. And artists like, um, story artists like Joe, Joe Ramft just taught me so many incredible lessons. Uh, Joe Ramft and, um, and, uh, Ed Gombert about 
resilience mm-hmm. and like I mean, have days where you feel like you've 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 lost you can oh, feel yeah. like the whole it's just collapsing around you Been because there. you know <laughs> yeah can't get the story work and you just you get you get stuck and their ability their ability to regroup and 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 drive around a problem instead mm-hmm. of like just hitting a wall over and over until it breaks like no just yeah. now you got to move around it that's not going to move you know that kind of ad- adaptable yeah. positive it doesn't mean that you can't be passionate about your ideas yeah. but you've got to You've got to have ways of persuading people that this is a good idea. And if it's not a good idea, you yourself have to be accepting that it isn't. Move yeah. on. Change your idea. Like, I've ordered a whole sequence in Beauty and the Beast. It was an utter waste of time. And instead of throwing a bit, I was like, you're right. Let's move on. So be the person that they can rely on. Be yeah. positive. Be inventive. And they'll always come back and go, hey, that guy was really, really um, great. Let's work with him again. Yeah. So just... I guess be the person people want to work with. Be that person amazing advice. Yep. they want to work with. And that's really the only way to do this kind of thing is that you build upon the things you've done. It's like, oh, you delivered this because you stuck with it because you didn't give up. The hardest yeah. project I ever worked on was Mulan. Yeah. That was a six-year um, monumental undertaking for, for us. Wow. Um, and I, most of my stories go back to Mulan. It was a very, very difficult film to get made. I did battle with writers. I battled with writers. I, I battled with some of the um, with the uh, with the songwriter. I've, but I never left that movie's side. I always advocated for the movie. I battled for the movie, and I did make waves here and there. Like I and and there were times where I felt like I, the movie was getting away from me. And I went through a very bad period of time where at the Florida studio I was practically sleeping with the studio yeah. because I, I would work through the day then i would do my own work at night i would go home just long enough to shower and take and get a few hours sleep and i'd come right back and i'd be back at the studio before anybody came in so i'd be there until people left and i'd come back in before they came in so i was just always at the studio wow. but that was, a, that was a period of time where i felt like i had in, i had invested years of my life i'm not going to lose this now yeah not in the last three months i'm gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna lose it now and so um wow yeah that that was a that was a tough movie, and Lilo and Stitch owes a lot. Owes, owes many many things to that film. That makes sense. I wouldn't sense. have had the opportunity because after I finished that film, the um, president of the studio, who was Tom Schumacher, was impressed enough with what I had done that we had dinner at the very very end. He came he came out to Florida. We were having dinner, and he said, "Is there anything you want to do? Is there anything you want to pitch?" Oh. And that's where I was like. There is something. And I remembered the story I'd worked on a long time ago, and I thought maybe I could pitch that. So that was the beginning of it. Was wow. it? So it, it earned the credibility on, on Mulan to helm my own project. Yeah. Well, that sounds exactly like what I'd want to happen, right? Yeah, it was funny because I, t- I tell people, like, wait, you don't want to be the director? And I'm like, there's lots to learn here. Like, <laughs> you know. I, I have I have a lot to learn. I have directed on a series. I helped a studio get a series off the ground, and then I was developing a new series. And the what you're describing with Mulan was very much my situation there, where uh, you know, and honestly, that I don't I don't even know if that series is going to come to light. It may, but uh, it was it was a challenging experience, and and I had to remain devoted to to the project, but also you know to the powers that be that that we're making the project happen and uh this is very interesting all the things you learn from that yes a lot of times you are managing you i think as a, as a director 
you manage um, anxiety on the on the part of the studio. Yeah. Um, and you know, for for good reason, they have a lot riding on these things. So you're a lot of your a lot of your job is managing anxiety and putting yeah. their letting them know they're heard, letting them also know that you have a steady hand of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And as you know, when I made the transition from from storyboarding and writing into directing, there came a moment like early on that I thought, well, I don't know if I can do this because I don't really know. I learned animation back in college, but I'm not an animator. Yeah. I hadn't done that since college. So I'm not an animator. I'm not a layout person. I'm not a composer. I don't, I'm not a cameraman. Huh. How can I do this directing thing? Yeah. Um, and there was this moment of like, and it, but as you know, all you're doing as a director is you're attending to the story. So, that was what I realized is my angle. I thought, I'm not going to tell people how to do their job. I don't have to know how to animate, nor do I have to know how to work the camera systems or do layouts or 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 write music. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know those things. I know the story. And so whenever I would sit down, and Dean did the same thing, we, we, we came to this decision together. If we sat down with animators, we wouldn't tell them how to animate. We would tell them what, what the scene was about. And we made a decision as directors, if they animate something and it is different than the way we saw it in our heads, but if it works, mm-hmm. we're done. Oh, absolutely. They so don't have to do the scene the way I saw it. Mm-hmm. But they, yeah, if we check the box and like the moment worked, we're done. Yeah. And that allows people yeah. that allows people room to be creative and to bring their gifts to the party. Yeah. And to some other people. Because I definitely have known about directors that have gone, no, I want his ear to move like this. And I want his nose to move like this. And no, like this is the way I saw. So it puts the animators in a position where they're trying to second guess what is in somebody else's head. And that's just no way to go forward. You're not going to get things done. So, yeah. um, Well, that's the thing. You have a bunch of people working on this movie and you want them to feel like they're adding something to it, that they're bringing something inspiring to it. It's their passion project, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So it's just you're going this direction. So when you know where the story is supposed to go, you can sit down with a with a composer even or like a layout person. It's like, okay, this moment of the film is about this. This is what the film needs. So it's and, and it's easier it's easier to advocate for the film than it is for yourself. It's yeah. weird. I can go in and fight for a film because I'm like, no, the film needs this, and I can fight for something or persuade people or stick with something. I, I'm not gonna go in and go, Well, I want this. It's like, yeah, you know, the film is right. I know what the film is. Anyway. Yeah, when you advocate when you advocate for the film and when you focus on the story, it doesn't matter who you're sitting in front of because you're just talking about the story, and then they can talk about okay, to get this moment, we want it to be raining and dark and and violets and blues and and bruised purples and stuff, and you're like, yeah, that's it, that's what we need. Yeah, the my last question is usually, and I think we've already covered this a little bit, is if my approach, if my goal is to get the greatest clarity of truth into a story, what approach would you recommend? I, I tend to start at the end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I tend to start at the yeah. end because I think like with Charlie Brown Christmas or To Kill a Mockingbird, like I'm sure they thought, well, how do they want the audience to feel? Mm-hmm. And what what is the primary thing you want to say? This is the interesting thing. Many, many times in animation, many, many times people go, but what is the theme? And they want a thematic statement before they're going to agree to make a film, <laughs> which I think is kind of silly because yes, like, it is. Well, I don't know what was the theme of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, it has a story. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it has a theme. The theme is always believe in yourself. I don't know. It's always the same theme. Yeah. Um, 
but does it have a story, you know? And in that story, so that's, I want to talk story, but I, I also want to talk compelling. It doesn't have to be relatable. It's great if people relate, but I don't have to relate to any single thing in a Star Wars film to be captivated by it. And ah, be I don't live in the future. I may not be, well, I'm, I'm not a Jedi. <laughs> I don't have any of these people's problems. So this whole thing about like people need to see themselves and stuff like that. That's great. Absolutely. Inclusivity. Fantastic. Um, Absolutely. But in the actual machinations of the story, Mm -hmm. compelling is the most important. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I can be compelled by stories that have people in them that don't look like me, that don't live where I live. But if I'm, and and I'm even, you know, but I'm compelled because I, I love those characters. Does that make sense? It so, does. Um, it does. And that's why that's why you can. I think it's it's um it's important that yeah, like pay attention to the story. Um, don't worry about don't worry too much about relatability. Yes, open it up. Be inclusive. Here's the thing: don't work to exclude. That's the thing that we yeah. always do in it. Yeah. You say, well, how can you make a film for as many people as possible? I work to not exclude. If I I, I try to have a film and a story that's working on many levels for different ages for for anybody who might come in yeah so i start at the end i think about what do i want people to feel what do i want to say and then i back up from there yeah and um, and i make sure that i i want to know where i'm landing <laughs> before i jump <laughs> yeah um that's cool I think, I, yeah. yeah if you start at the beginning and just try to work your way through things you might go somewhere you didn't really want to go <laughs> yeah so, i so, liked your statement on theme too that was that was really cool like I, Miyazaki, as I was reading one of his books, he was talking about, well, if we could just write the theme down, then why don't you just do that? Why make an hour and a half movie? You know, mm. <laughs> there should be a lot more depth if we're going to go for an hour and a half. Something that's a lot more compelling, like you said. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Yeah. And again, if you have a theme, great. That's great. Like, but I, yeah, people it, don't come to films and go, oh my gosh, I loved that theme. Nobody says that. Like, no. You know, I love so the I part when, or I was moved when, or, you know, yeah. Yeah, theme versus story. It's yeah. I think I think it's almost a go-to sometimes. Like, well, what's your theme? Like, oh, oh yeah. Well, if you think you have a movie, then what's your theme? Huh? Answer that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many like great movies I've worked on that I couldn't tell you what the theme is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, this has been a wonderful time. Thank you so much for being on. And uh, I've let people know where they can follow you on Instagram, on your link tree. I put that in the in the show notes so they can find that. And is there anything else you'd like people to check out in the meantime? Oh, my gosh. Not that I can think of. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on here. And until next time, I hope we all get a little wiser. Thank you for watching the Directing Animation Livecast, hosted by Scott Weiser, audio version edited by Kira Horowitz, copyright Scott Weiser, LLC 2022. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and ring that notification bell.